pornography is a big stumbling block for men. And, and when you think about pornography, this wild act of sex on a screen that men get aroused by, like men get, get this 15 seconds of, of, of satisfaction from, and then they feel completely hollow and empty afterwards. It's the experience of every man I've met. The problem is you can't behave your way um, out of pornography. There has to be a change at the immaterial spiritual level. There has to be a change in our desires. It's not, man, what can I do to stop being addicted? It's how do I revert to what I was created for? There's an additional issue with pornography, which is not often discussed, which is that, remember, guys in particular, the brain is a learning prediction machine. And if, I'm not trying to say that all pornography is bad, but there are good data to support the idea that if your brain learns to be aroused by watching other people have sex, it is not necessarily gonna carry over to the ability to get aroused when you're one-on-one -on -one with somebody else, right? The, it, especially young kids who are consuming a lot of pornography, mm -hmm. the brain is learning sexual arousal to other people having sex. So you're sex. gonna program yourself into being a voyeur. Or, yeah, or just create challenges in, in sexual interactions mm -hmm. with, uh, you know, with, with peers, uh, with, a, with a real partner. Right. Mary Harrington has the three laws of porno dynamics, and the second law of porno dynamics is the law of fap entropy. And it says that whatever you start out wanking to will get progressively more intense over time. And I think that this is sort of speaking to that ever, ever sort of escalating amount of um, the wildness that you need to watch in order to get an ever decreasing stimulus that comes back. Yeah. And, you know, here I'm, I'm approaching this only through the lens of biology, right? I'm not a you know, I'm not a psychologist and I'm certainly not um, political in, it, in any way, at least not, I have ideas about politics, but I just don't discuss them publicly. But the, but the idea here is that, you know, I'm not saying pornography as a stimulus is bad or good. What I'm saying is it, in its availability and its extreme forms, it's a very potent stimulus and very potent stimuli of any kind, extremely palatable food extreme pornography, um, extreme experiences like bungee cord jumping, those set a threshold for dopamine release. And Anna will tell you that, and I'm sure she did, that the higher the dopamine peak, the bigger the drop afterwards. And it's not that you drop to baseline, you drop below baseline. So again, it's not, these things aren't good or bad, they just have to be controlled in a way because when people are pursuing dopamine peaks over and over and over and they, aren't getting them, typically it's because they've been pursuing that activity far too often. And you're saying perhaps take a break from that and there may be uh, an ability for yourself, your system to reset. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in theory, all the things that we're talking about with pornography could be superimposed onto food or could be superimposed onto real sex, right? Um, that one also has to be cautious there, right? But the cycling back and forth between dopamine and low dopamine states dopamine fasting as it were, but maybe just low dopamine states. These are natural rhythms that exist in the nervous system. We have to remember what the dopaminergic system is there for. I'll say it again, I wasn't consulted at the design phase, but we know as a, as a generic form of motivation and pursuit, you can imagine the human or the animal that's hungry or thirsty. It needs energy to go pursue the thing. So the idea that you have to eat in order to get energy, that's true, but you need energy in order to get the thing to eat. So our nervous system has energy also, that's dopamine and epinephrine. 
yes, we use glucose and glycogen, et cetera, when we're pursuing things. But the idea here is you're pursuing something and then either by smell or by sight, you think you're on the right track. So you go down that track and then, ah, there it is. You know, you get some berries or you get, you know, let's get prehistoric about this or you get to kill the prey and eat it. And then it gives you energy to continue this pursuit or to reproduce. I mean, there's a reason why humans and other animals seek out reproduction is that every, every species, but certainly humans have two innate desires built into them, whether or not they decide to actualize this or not, is the desire to protect young and make more of its own species. Every successful species does that. Even if people don't have children, in general, people care about children because they of what they represent. Very few people dislike children. I mean, there are a few mutants out there that dislike children, but you always worry about those kinds of people. Yeah, it's interesting. What Huberman says is, I mean, it's, it's real, it's, it's good, it, it's correct. Um, it's talking about neuroscience. It's, it's talking about the material. And, and the brain is an organ, right? And you can, you can train your brain. Um, you, can, you can train your will, right? I know some, uh, some modern-day Stoics that, that, have, that have disciplined themselves um, to the point of um, almost feeling no pain or, or in his case, uh, running after extreme uh, emotional highs or emotional lows, right? Um, you can do that. What he doesn't address is the immaterial. Um, I think it was Shakespeare who said, the heart wants what the heart wants, right? At the end of the day, it's not our brain that will dictate and drive us. It's our emotions. It's our feelings. It's, it's the desires of our heart. And if our heart is captivated by um, sinful or unhealthy or unproductive things, that's exactly the direction we'll head. We'll, we will pursue sinful, unhealthy, unproductive things. And there has to be a change at the, at the immaterial spiritual level. There has to be a change in our desire before we can start to push back against the, the darkness in this world and the darkness in our own lives, right? So, so in one instance, yes, you can retrain your brain. And this is what psychiatrists and psychologists have been doing um, uh, for decades, right? Um, behavior therapy or behavior modification, uh, the problem is you can't behave your way um, out of pornography. You can't behave your way out of sin, basically. There has to be a change at the, at the immaterial spiritual level. There has to be a change in our desires. And, and only, only that comes from God. Like That only comes from, from discovering something greater than porn, Right? Uh, discovering a greater joy and a greater pleasure. Like, like sometimes, and this is where the Stoics got it wrong, like the Stoics tried to kill or, or depress joy and pleasure to where they became kind of emotionless or um, they didn't want to have feelings. Feelings were a bad thing. I think it's the opposite. Like we were created as emotional beings who, who feel. Uh, the problem is like we run after all these kind of subpar shortcut kind of ethereal things when, when in reality we're, we're to be deriving our joy and we're to be deriving ultimate pleasure from like the ultimate source. And when we're not deriving joy and pleasure from the ultimate source, we'll go look for these cheap and petty ways and these cheap and petty sources to derive that. And, and that's where the problem is. It's, it's, it's deep, right? It's not just, man, I'm going to train my brain to stop watching porn or or I'm gonna I'm gonna you know 
you know, turn my gaze and bounce my eyes and things of that nature. Like you can do that for a while, but, but ultimately the heart is going to go after what the heart wants and the heart is going to get what the heart wants. That's the question. Like, what does your heart want? Like, what is the real desire of your heart? Because Shakespeare was right. At the end of the day, the heart wants what the heart wants. As a man, we're wired for pleasure. We're wired for joy. Like sex is a gift from God. Like the, the physical senses of, of, of sex. I mean, even when you think about, you know, ejaculation and like the climax of sex, like, like the, the euphoria from that is a good gift, right? It's a gift. It's, it's something to be experienced, something to be enjoyed. The problem is when, when those things become the ultimate gift or when they become the means to an end. So, so as men, we were created for pleasure. We were created for joy. And, and here's the reality. And it was an old church father, Thomas Aquinas, who said this. He said, man was built for joy. We were wired for pleasure. And when we don't ultimately find that joy and find that pleasure in God, who's the ultimate source of joy and pleasure, we will naturally look to carnal things of the world to find that pleasure. So when we're not finding our ultimate satisfaction in God, we're going to look to worldly things. It just so happens that one of the most accessible, easiest places to look to find that joy and satisfaction is pornography. Pornography is cheap. It's readily available at our fingertips. It wasn't like 30 or 40 years ago where you had to sneak into your dad's room and look under his mattress and, and, and grab the Playboy. Like those days are over. You can turn on television and find softcore porn now. And then it's readily accessible on our phones. I mean, it's the number one Google thing by men, right? Uh, how do I stop looking at porn? Well, why? It's because all they do is look at porn. Like, like we're addicted to porn, and it's just not in the church or outside the church. It's both. Seven of ten men, seven of ten pastors today report that they have a problem with watching porn. And what it is, it's just a cheap substitute to the joy and the glory and the satisfaction we're supposed to be finding in God that we're not, so we're looking for carnal pleasures to satisfy that. And I want you to think about what this means. I hear men say all the time, well, well, I'm addicted to porn. I have a problem with porn. That's not really the case. It's not an addiction. If, if you're sitting in your basement right now watching porn, it's not because you're addicted to porn. It's because you're sad. It's because you're alone because you're isolated. It's because you're not finding joy and purpose in what you were created for, so you're looking to cheap substitutes. And it just so happens to be a readily accessible substitute. So you naturally gravitate to that. And then you fall into this vicious loop of pleasure and pain, pleasure and pain, pleasure and pain. So I watch porn, 15 seconds of pleasure, and then days of guilt and shame. But then I'll watch porn, 15 seconds of pleasure, and then days of guilt and shame. And it's this endless loop until eventually you become numb to it. And it ruins just about every aspect of your life. Why? Because you're addicted? No. It's because you're sad. And I'm talking to you. I'm telling you. It's because you're sad. It's because you're looking for joy 
and you're looking for satisfaction in the wrong thing. You've got to derive that joy, that satisfaction from God. I tell men all the time, when my wife and I make love, like God is up in heaven cheering us on. Because we're making love to His glory. Because we derive all our joy and all our satisfaction from Him. When I'm deriving my joy and when I'm deriving my satisfaction from the giver of joy and satisfaction, from, from He who is joy and ultimate satisfaction, then everything in, everything else in life just adds to that joy. It doesn't take away from that joy. Like when I'm oriented to God, this is why Jesus said, Seek first the kingdom of heaven and everything else will be added to you, right? It's why C.S. Lewis said that if you aim for the earth and all its carnal pleasures, you get nothing. But when you aim for heaven, you get heaven and the earth too. Like you get all the pleasures of the earth with it. It's because we seek first the kingdom of heaven and then everything is added. Right now we're seeking first the carnal pleasures and then maybe the kingdom of heaven will be added later. That's not how it works. It's not how it works. We have to find joy and satisfaction in the Lord. And then from that, man, sex becomes greater. From that, our work becomes greater. From that, like our leisure time and rest becomes greater because, because we're taking the gift and we're not elevating it above the giver of gifts. Think about that. Sex is a good gift from God. When we take that gift and make it more important than the giver of the gift, then it becomes ultimate and it becomes a bad thing. It becomes a bad thing, right? And, and from that, we, we, we become addicted to porn. I, I hear men all the time, they, they talk about addiction to different things. Well, I'm addicted to alcohol. I'm addicted to work. I'm addicted to sex. I'm addicted to sleep. No, no, you're not. The reality is you're not, you're not addicted to those things. The reality is those, those things have become your ultimate end. Like, like, like those things are where you're going to find satisfaction. And it's not, man, what can I do to stop being addicted? It's, it's, it's man, how do, I, how do I revert to what I was created for? Right? It's, it, it's what's called inverted thinking or inversion thinking. My man, Warren Buffett out of Omaha, kind of made this popular, right? So Warren Buffett said, everybody always asks me, um, how do I get rich? Like, Warren, give me five ways to get rich. And he said they're asking the wrong questions. He said, I never ask myself, man, how do I become rich? He said, the question I always ask myself is, what's keeping me poor? And then I identified those things. It's the same thing with people who want to lose weight, right? Um, how do I lose weight? That's the wrong question. The question is, what's keeping you fat? Like, that's the question. Like, figure that out and then, like, work out of the problem. Work back into the problem. So it's not, man, it's not how do I, um, um, how do I fight pornography or how do I stop being addicted to porn or how do I stop watching porn, right? Because what you'll, what you'll read and what you'll do is, um, Cancel your HBO Max account. Um, get rid of your smartphone and get a get a get a basic phone. Right. Um, sign up for Covenant Eyes and get an accountability partner. But that's not the problem. Is those are all surface things. Uh, it doesn't get at the heart. Right. 
Um, I, I one time asked a, a 90 year old man, a 90 year old man, I said, man, when am I going to stop lusting after other woman? Like, like when is my heart going to stop being drawn um, uh, to beautiful women? And he started laughing and he said, never. He said, I'm 90 years old and I still have to wrestle and fight against that. I think about biblical figures like, like the Ethiopian eunuch, right? They would, eunuchs basically had their junk cut off and, and, and they would do that as a sign of holiness. They would do that because they thought that that would keep them from lusting after women. Little did they know that it wasn't, that it wasn't about your member, it was actually about your heart. <laughs> like you can have your stuff cut off and still lust after women and like still long uh, for that pleasure in sex, right? So typically what happens is when you're trying to fight porn, like it's all this behavior modification, but you're not getting at the root of the issue. You're not getting at the heart of the issue. The reason why you're watching porn is because you're finding your satisfaction uh, in something trivial. The reason why you're watching porn is because you're taking a shortcut to something God has promised you over here. Like he's promised you joy and satisfaction in sex the way he's designed sex, the way he has designed lovemaking, not the way the culture has. And because you've settled for what the culture offers, this little shortcut, man, you're missing the joy of what he has for you. So it's nothing, it has nothing to do with, with, with behavior modification. It has everything to do with the desires of your heart. Man, are you seeking first his kingdom? Are you seeking first what he says is best? And then when you do, all this other stuff will be added to you. It's a question of desire. It's always been a question of desire. When the first would-be disciples in, in John chapter 1, I think it's verse 30, the first would-be disciples come to Jesus and, and they say, Rabbi. And Jesus turns and, and the first question he asks, and it's the question he's been asking ever since, he turns and he says, what do you want? And he doesn't ask them their name. He doesn't ask them what sins they're struggling with. He doesn't ask them what they do for a living, you know, all the stuff we ask. He just looks at them. He says, what do you want? And the Greek word there for want translates to desire. He's asking them, man, what is your heart's desire? Because if you're desiring anything more than you desire me, you are going to be left wanting. If you're desiring anything more than you're desiring me, you're going to be left unfulfilled. If you're desiring anything more than you're desiring me, you're going to be left dissatisfied and sad and lonely. Like it doesn't work out if he's not our foremost desire. It doesn't work out. He's got to be the one. And then when you seek him first, all this other stuff will be added. Shortcuts are everywhere. So what this really does, it, it goes back to the fall, um, to this to this point in the garden where a man was created to work and give his all, but then work was cursed, right? And, and now instead of enjoying his work and, and wanting to give his all, there's going to be thorns and thistles and work is going to be hard. So we are naturally going to become passive and we're going to look for shortcuts. And, and that's really been, been a strategy against men for millennia now. So instead of walking in your full inheritance, instead of walking in the full joy and contentment um, that God has for us, we want to take, take shortcuts that only offer a portion of that inheritance. It only offers an, a, a portion of that, of that contentment. And, and ultimately, it's, it, it's false contentment. 
It's false joy. It's a false inheritance. So, so for most men, like, like most men aren't going to completely break down and fall out, right? Most men, they're just going to live this kind of non-existent life where they're taking one shortcut after another, whether that's a shortcut in, in marriage, a shortcut in work, a shortcut in sex, a shortcut in leisure, whatever it is, they're just going to take one shortcut after another. Um, uh, and then they're just going to live this non-existent, disenfranchised, like futile life. Right. And, and really, I mean, I mean, think about it. That's that's all that, you know, pornography is. Pornography is a big stumbling block for men. And and when you think about pornography, it's it's so base and animalistic and simple. It's it's it's, you know, this this wild act of sex on a screen that that men get aroused by, like men get get this 15 seconds of, of, of satisfaction from, and then they feel completely hollow and empty afterwards. Like that's the experience of every man I've met. Like they watch porn, 15 seconds of satisfaction, and then it's just hollow, shameful, empty feeling until you've done it so much that, that like the shame even becomes hardened and then you just feel numb. So there are a lot of men that, that they're sitting in a basement right now, they're watching porn, and, and they're there not because they're addicted, like they think they're addicted to porn, they're not. They're actually there because they're sad, because they're hollow and they're just numb, right? They, they, they haven't found true joy and real joy and contentment in what God has for us in like sex with a woman. So, so we've settled for watching it on, a, on an eight-inch screen, which is just pathetic, it's just sad, right? And and C.S. Lewis talked about this. It, he, he he talks about he calls them um, weak-chested men or men with no chest, like it's a hollow masculinity. So instead of walking into our full inheritance, like we've settled for these shortcuts and like these little instances of gratification and success and joy, and and where God has offered us this this what Lewis called this holiday at sea, we're content playing with mud pies on the seashore. Like, and we think that's life. I'm living the dream. And it's just, it's absolutely sad. So as I work with men all across the country, tens of thousands of men, you know, I can, I can almost put every man into one of four categories. One of four categories, right? So first is what I call the, the uninitiated man. And this is, the, this is the fearful, anxious man. Like he doesn't, he doesn't ever stand up or step out or speak up like 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 typically you see him if he's married like his wife's out in front and he's kind of like behind her um head down kind of wet puppy dog look just kind of following along right he's he he's caught in this paralyzed state like he knows like he has this natural he has a warrior inside of him like he knows the way the world should be but he's caught in this tension with the way his world is and he's just paralyzed by that. So he's just uninitiated. He won't take initiative. And he just lives in this, this perpetual state of just like, just like following his whole life, right? The second type of man is, is what I call the self-initiated man. And, and you see this a lot in, in some figures like Andrew Tate and David Goggins and people like that where, um, you know, they're going to take life by the horns and wrestle it to the ground, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, right? I wasn't given a path, so I'm going to make my own path. And, and whoever I have to run over or whatever I have to run over, anything that gets in my way, like, you better watch out because I'm coming. I'm the self-initiated man. You see this in the poem Invictus, right? 
I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. Like a lot of men live like that. As a matter of fact, um, the Oklahoma City bomber, Timothy McVeigh, he was a, he was a self-initiated man. You know, he killed all those people in Oklahoma City, and, and right before they lethally injected him, they asked him if he had any final words. Do you know, do you know what he said? He quoted Invictus. I'm the master of my fate. I'm the, the captain of my soul. And, and I'm pretty sure right after he died, he, he realized that he wasn't. He, rep, he met the real master of his fate and captain of his soul. Like that, that peer-initiated man is so dangerous because typically what happens is, man, they will latch on to anything that they find meaning and success in. So like unhealthy work, unhealthy sex, like anything that they can find meaning and purpose in, like they go after and they go hard after that. So you have the uninitiated, you have the self-initiated. Another one is what I call the peer-initiated man. It's the peer-initiated man. And, and this, is, this is a guy that he's found some semblance of brotherhood, but like he's in a perpetual fraternity state. Like, like it's an adolescent brotherhood. It's like the frat guy. So, and you know who I'm talking about? You may be that guy. You're the 40, 50, 60-year-old man who still lives like a frat boy. Like life is a party and it's, it's that bros before hoes culture, right? It's Drake. We started from the bottom. Now we're here. The whole team's here, right? And you just live in this perpetual state of adolescence. And there is no wisdom. Um, there is no growth because it's just one foolish man running after another foolish man, right? The Bible talks about iron sharpening iron. Well, there's no sharpening here because it's one dull knife rubbing up against another dull knife like you're just a bunch of butter knives in the drawer. Like, like you're this, you're this peer-initiated man, and because there's no wisdom, there's no, there's no real life experience, there's no growth, right? So you have the uninitiated, you have this, the self-initiated, you have the peer-initiated, and, and then the last category that I see is, the, is what I call the culture-initiated man. And because this man has no real path, right, he had no example, he didn't have a spiritual father or maybe a father at all, like leading him down an ancient path, like he'll just go with wherever culture says go. So wherever the cultural winds blow, like he just follows along. He just goes from one expression of masculinity to the next, and he just leaves a wake of hurt and brokenness behind him. And because he stands for nothing, like he falls for everything because there is no solid foundation. He's just influenced by the winds of culture. So everywhere I go, like, like men I meet, within the first five or ten minutes, I can typically put them, oh, he's an uninitiated man. He's a self-initiated man. He's a peer-initiated man. He's a culture-initiated man. And like, like you need to know where you at, you're, you're at. You need to know where you're at. Like even hearing me describe that, like everybody listening to this, you probably fit in one or more of those categories. And, and what we want to be is, is, is not the uninitiated or the self-initiated or the peer-initiated or the culture-initiated. We want to be what I call a spirit-initiated man. Like we want the full inheritance God has for us. We want to be like Caleb who said, Lord, I'm twice as old, but I'm just as strong. Give me the land that you promised me. And like, we want to take that land. That's what the hard path is all about. Like, that's not the easy route. The hard path is being that spirit-initiated man, walking in the fullness of life 
and inheritance that God has for you. Stop taking shortcuts. Stop settling for, for the, the portion of inheritance that the world offers you when God has offered you the full inheritance. He's offered you a holiday, a paradise at sea full of good food and good drink and good sex. Don't settle for mud pies sitting on a seashore.